Hello, nerds, and welcome. We are crossing the Nerdverse here to bring you along on another quest this week, Retro Gaming. I'm Travis, joined always by my fantastic co-hosts, Eric and Ryan. Eric, how you been this week? Well, it's been it's been a little busy. Uh, work, interviews, stuff like that. Also a um, night full of drunken stupors last night. Um, so anybody that I happened to text or anything of the nature last night in my moment of weakness i apologize also on that note i did speak to a, a good friend that i hadn't talked to in a while um he's actually running his own podcast uh, everlasting veteran it's interesting i like it um i've only listened to the one episode so I, i'm gonna try to try to get a little bit better about it but it's basically it's a way for uplifting support for veteran community um so it's something so many of you uh vets or even non-vets that just want to hear some some good stuff uh definitely check it out everlasting veteran awesome ryan how about you brother oh it's been an awesome week for me it's been really top tier i got to uh got to go out of town spend some time with the family which was fantastic got to hang out in person with a couple buddies of mine so shout out to joey and ugly got to spend a lot of time with them it was really cool uh, did a lot of gaming, a lot of model crafting for Warhammer. Very, very excited for the announcement at Adepticon. By the way, uh, for those of our those of you that listen that play uh, play Warhammer 40k, they just announced the 10th edition release coming out this summer, and so I'm very much looking forward to that. I'm super excited about that, and so I got to spend the week with my family and and doing a lot of geekery with my buds. So it's, it's been really cool. How about you, Travis? For those of you that follow along on our Facebook and Twitter, I completed the Baton Memorial Death March Marathon, 26.2 miles on pavement, on dirt roads, through sand, over gravel. Definitely a rough, rough marathon course, uh, like 1500 feet elevation gain. Like you go around like a really, really tall hill uh, over a very long period of time. So it was good. It's my first year actually completing it. I've done the half a couple of times. I actually wore my feet down to the point that they had blisters from my big toe all the way to my heel and about as wide as a dollar bill on the bottom side of my feet the first year I did it. So I didn't complete it. And if anybody knows anything about me, I don't like losing. And that definitely felt like an L. So big redemption for me. I was very emotional crossing the finish line. First time I finished a marathon, uh, especially for one with a cause that's so near and dear to my heart. My great uncle Hutch is a survivor of the baton. So every year, you know, we march in his honor this year. Uh, I pulled another random name and put it on my pack. So Sergeant Oscar Dean, it was nice having you walk with me. Appreciate you hanging out for the whole time. I know I wasn't very fast, but we made it to the finish line all the same. So definitely definitely a good week for me other than that just uh spent my whole week trying to fight off this cold if you can tell my voice may be a little nasal more nasally than normal 
little raspy sounding, but we're going to power through for you. No, that's, that's awesome, man. That's a, that's great. Doing those, uh, those memorial marches. That's, that's a test. So mad respect to you, man. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah. About two miles of it is through pretty deep, like loose sand. And I tell you what, it'll, it'll suck the heart out of you, man. Like I, I was questioning whether or not I was going to be able to make it through that, but they always dangle that little, little carrot, you know, that little light at the end of the tunnel. And I could see the berm, which was the uh, stretch to home, because you just follow this nice little berm, gentle curve to the finish line. And you can see it when you get into the sand way off there in the distance. You know, it is the open desert, so distances can be deceiving. I just kept telling myself it's only two miles for about the last 10 miles of that marathon. I was like, just two more miles and you'll be finished. Just two more. But made it there all the same. To go along, though... You, I, you mentioned breaking news, and this triggered it into my memory. A couple of big things have happened in wrestling this week. The first one, we're finally getting the Rey Mysterio-Dominic match at WrestleMania. Been looking forward to that one. I'm sure there's going to be some wild shenanigans, so make sure you guys tune in. I guess April 1st and 2nd is when they're doing WrestleMania this year, since it's a two-night event. If you want to watch Rey Mysterio beat the brakes off of his child, I'm pretty sure they're going to do that night two if I were a gambling man so keep an eye out for that and for those of you that just enjoy professional wrestling in general you need to watch Kenny Omega versus El Hijo del Vikingo and I hope I pronounce that as best I can being from New Mexico I'm sure I'm going to catch some shit for that but uh, that match absolute banger Uh, people on Twitter had faux outrage um, in regards to well there was no storyline you don't need a storyline for Kenny Omega versus El, uh, Del Vikingo. That thing was an absolute banger, like just a spot fest. Amazing set. So if you've got free time, take the 15 minutes. Give that give that match a watch. It's definitely worth every second. All right. Well, before we get into the big topic for tonight, I do want to take a minute and offer some congratulations to our first nominated Hero of the Nerdverse. So congratulations to Matt Wildman. You've been nominated and entered the uh, the event for some sweet free swag next month. So congratulations to Matt Wildman. For any of you listeners that are, that are interested in becoming a Hero of the Nerdverse, for having your name entered into our system, and the opportunity to win some sweet free swag from either... The Crossing the Nerdverse podcast or our parent brand, Heroes of the Nerdverse. All you need to do is keep a watchful eye on our social media. So watch out for the challenge to be entered as a hero of the Nerdverse. Last week, it was nominations. Next week, or this week, maybe something different. So keep your eye on the Facebook page, Heroes of the Nerdverse, and keep your eye on our Twitter account, CTN underscore podcast. There'll be a challenge posted and instructions to follow. But That'll uh, lead us into our topic tonight, one that's very near and dear to me, and one that I picked almost exclusively for Eric, actually, because I give him no end of smoke about the only video games he's admitting to liking coming out. I think the most recent one is 2007, so tonight will be about nostalgia and retro gaming. Okay, not not quite that long ago. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of, of Jedi Fallen Order, 
that that's, oh, that's a recent ish released game i'm i'm looking it up right now so i can give <laughs> you like endless amounts of shit for this but yes uh my top 10 favorite games were all probably long ago 2019 eric 19 okay so he's got See? a recent one it. there you go i <laughs> yeah i mean i actually I, i'm not gonna lie it it made me feel like an old fogey when I decided to give him smoke about that because Mass Effect came out in 2007. And to consider that a long time ago made my hip hurt. <laughs> I felt very, very old. Um, but yeah, so retro gaming, nostalgia, nostalgia in gaming. It's something that everybody's got a little bit of, I think. You know, everybody has fond memories and, and fond experiences with old games. And we've touched on it a couple times in previous episodes where we remember our first video games or the most difficult ones we ever played when we were kids or, or, or whatever. And so that's what I wanted to talk about tonight. And we're my plan is to talk about nostalgia in general and to bring up some really key features. So I'm going to go ahead and open us off with what is retro gaming? What am I even talking about? So the best kind of description of retro gaming that I could find actually just came straight off Wikipedia. I think they, they pretty much nailed it. And they said retro gaming, also known as classic gaming or old school gaming, is the playing and collecting of obsolete personal computers, consoles, and video games. And I personally think this can relate to board games as well, but not quite in the same separations. So I'm going to focus tonight primarily on PCs, consoles, and video games that have been made old or obsolete. So let's start it off. Eric, do you have any retro games that you hold near and dear to your heart? Yeah, I have, I have all kinds. Um, I'm a huge... I like Eight Eyes. A lot of people don't know that game. Um, came out in Nintendo. So you're like a... F I can't remember exactly. It's been a minute since I played it. But you're like this fighter guy and you have... I think it's an eagle. See, this is so bad. I should have prepped way better with this game. Anyways, the reason I loved it so much is because to solve some of the puzzles, you have to use the bird. Um, so it was kind of cool um, when you're playing through because he could also attack. I mean, it wasn't very good, but he could attack. Uh, and then you can play two players, uh, but the other person's a bird, so it's not quite that exciting. But it, it was it was just cool. You could you had a bird. It was hard. It wasn't easy. Um, you had to keep keeping the bird alive could be kind of annoying. Did the bird come equipped with a dictionary? No. Because no the bird is the word. <laughs> uh, for those of you that are but, interested, the game he's talking about, Eight Eyes, is a 2D action platforming game from 1988. <laughs> so, <laughs> See, like all the good games came out. Platoon for Nintendo. That was another classic one. Paperboy. Oh, yeah. You know, this, this solid triple a titles well when you focus on video gaming you generally get a lot of the big dogs in the yard so to speak right you're always going to have the the actual old fogey gamers that are pong from 1972 space invaders 1978 tetris 1984 you know these are classics that will always be around and have been remade recasted and redone dozens of times but nothing for these you know these collectors ever really beat the originals for our film buffs out there, there is in fact a Tetris documentary or docufilm of some kind coming out very soon. So just a heads up to keep an eye out for that if you're a Tetris lover. Oh, there you go. 
And in regards to remakes, something that's very exciting for me, since I like my older games, uh, Knights of the Old Republic's getting like a full revamp, so it's not just oh, going to be some awesome, some like quick hustled thing. Um, I don't remember the company doing it, um, but they've done remakes before, um, so it's it's getting redone for PS Five, and I think they're doing the Xbox. Oh, there you go. Well, and then you have the big games that come out, and I, I you know, I'm going to give you hell for Eight Eyes because. Not only is that a a retro game, but that is an obscure retro game. So <laughs> I'm gonna divert a little bit of smoke off of Eric here. Uh, I have a particular favorite retro game that is even older, I believe, than Eric's. Oh, Moon Patrol for the Atari Twenty Six Hundred. Oh man, reaching deep. And I'm not talking like some of the revamped Atari 2600s. No, if your shit didn't say JCPenney on it, you did not have an OG Atari 2600. And Moon Patrol was by far one of the best games made for that thing. Yeah, Moon Patrol was solid. That was one of the ones that started off as an arcade cabinet. Like it didn't even didn't even have a console forever. That was just that was an old school arcade cabinet. Um, so I'm going to look it up real quick. It looks like it was licensed and distributed in North America in 1982. Not bad at all. So let's let's talk about the big metal winners when it comes to retro gaming. These are the ones that really have held on to a fan base decade after decade. And so we're going to talk about The Legend of Zelda, A Link to the Past, 1991. Um, we're going to talk about Super Mario Brothers 3, 1988. And... A couple other ones that really stand out to me. One of them is Sonic the Hedgehog 2. It's 1992. And just got some sweet movie love uh, with uh, two different movies, I believe. I know my girls are all about it. So, And then the big one, especially for, for us here at, uh, at Crossing. 1997, Final Fantasy 7. Single greatest video game, probably. I think... Well, top two. Mario RPG... Probably my favorite Final Fantasy Seven. Wow, they're kind of they're like I don't know, brother, and yeah, brother, I guess. Now, there's going to be an interesting dynamic when it comes to the nostalgia factor for these because everybody remembers different games differently. You just brought up Super Mario RPG. Congratulations on your niche gaming again. Not a whole lot of people know about that one, so. <laughs> but the people that are very much in love with some of the games that I just mentioned, Final Fantasy Seven. Legend of Zelda, Super Mario Brothers 3. These are all fantastic, award-winning games, but they have a different player base from some of the other ones that, when I started looking up the numbers, really stood out. Things like Doom from 1993, Contra from 1987, which potentially is one of the most famous video games of all time and has the most famous cheat code for sure. Contra, you know, the Konami code being a thing. Um, and for those of you that have been following some of the more recent news and the, the beta releases and stuff, we're going to talk about Diablo from 1996. And all of these were interesting to me because it's such a wide variety of genre. And we were starting to see the emergence of art forms and video games. And so I know for me, I'll catch my stuff because of The Legend of Zelda. Link to the Past was one of my all-time favorites. I played it endlessly. It's not my favorite Zelda game because Majora's Mask is going to hold that forever and ever and ever. But yeah, did you guys do any Zelda? Yeah, I have played. Yeah, I did. 
Go ahead, Travis. I've, I've played it. I've played every one. I have finished one. <laughs> gotcha. I have finished. All right. I have finished a Zelda game, and it took me. It is fifteen years. It is weird to say, but like I do think the older Zelda games had a hard time keeping me there, which is weird because I can't. I know I beat a Link to the Past when I was a kid. I can't remember much of the other ones I beat. Ocarina of Time, or Ocarina of Time, however you say it. O- Ocarina. That one. We'll get there Ocarina. together. Whatever. <laughs> All right, you English majors. Um, but I think those are the two that I beat all the way through. Um, any of the other games, honestly, I can't tell you why, because the storyline is usually pretty good. Um, their mechanics are pretty simple, usually, so... Uh, but yeah, great story. Yeah, that's that's me too. You know, Zelda's always been really near and dear to me. In fact, um, I'm pretty sure that A Link to the Past is the very first video game, just in general, that I completed. And I'm gonna I'm gonna fall into a little bit of an anecdote time here. When I was when I was young, my my mother would take me over to uh, a friend of a friend of the family's house. And I had a, I guess I'm going to call it a buddy. I had a buddy. It's my mom's friend's husband. So (laughs) take that for what you will. He was a big gamer and my family's always, always been into, into video games ever since my dad bought us the very first Nintendo entertainment system, which thanks dad. I really appreciate it. You molded my entire personality from that one purchase. Um, And I'm pretty sure he bought it for my mother, believe it or not. And us kids just kind of took it over. But she would take us over there to hang out. And uh, their, their names were Stacy and John. Great people. But John was playing A Link to the Past. And I was I was a kid at this time. And I would just sit down and watch him play. I'd sit down next to him and watch him play this game. And one of my very first memories that I have of gaming, I wasn't even actually holding the controller. And there was a part in A Link to the Past. So, I mean, spoiler alert from this 1991 game, I guess. (laughs) There's an area where you're in something of a library and there's a book that you need. You can tell that you need to collect it because in those old school 8-bit games, you could tell what items you needed to grab and what what you didn't. And he couldn't figure out how to get it down. And... He tried... He tried everything. He tried his swords. He tried bombs. He tried everything. And I finally told him, just run into it with your speed boots... And so we tried it, and sure enough, that was the key. That was the first puzzle I ever solved in a video game. And ever since then, I've been absolutely hooked. And so I do. I hold The Legend of Zelda games very near and dear, as as many fans do. Um, and then, of course, I'm thinking this one's going to hit all of us. 1996, Pokemon Red and Blue. I mean, that's, that's a big one. I know that was a huge one for me. I remember getting my first brick of a Game Boy to play it on. I mean, did you guys, did y'all, when did y'all get into Pokemon? I gotta know. Was Were you an adult or did you pick it up as a kid? I I picked it up on release and I picked red. I oh, red I man, okay. I didn't have the nickels and dimes to do both. I actually had to, I got the game before I got my Game Boy. Like that's oh, how wow. ready I was. Yeah, that's how ready I was for that <laughs> game. I actually played off of a friend of mine's Game Boy because he had a he had two. 
a slightly better off family than mine was growing up. Uh, he let me use his older Game Boy while he got a new Game Boy until I could get mine. And so, yeah, I played I played Red like on release. I remember having to sneak because the Game Boys were banned at our middle school. If you remember, yeah. Ryan, they were. They sure were. weren't weren't allowed, so you had to sneak them in your backpack, and then on lunch breaks, you know, you'd hook up your fifty foot Game Boy cable so you could trade Pokemon with other people. <laughs> Absolutely. Thought you were. I can't. I can't remember which color I had first. I want to say I think it was blue, um, but I don't don't remember. Um, I did. We did have both though, because um, my sister, I think at the time, played a little bit. I still have blue somewhere in this house. Yeah, it was great. I mean, Pokemon was a, a stellar idea. Um, and it's just like, it's been such a driving force. Like, we all love Final Fantasy and, and all these games, but I don't think any game has been as popular or any series as Pokemon to make as many games, like, not just on, on systems, but like, on your phone that pokemon go everyone loves oh yeah um yeah like that just crazy to see where that's come so i was one of those 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 weirdos i guess so i didn't originally get pokemon myself now travis knows i come from a very large family and so it was actually my brother got pokemon red and my cousin kobe he was living with us at the time he got pokemon blue and i didn't get one and they were playing it and it started booming in popularity and they got it on release. And so I ended up, my very first Pokemon game was yellow. Now I had never seen the show. I had, I'd never seen the cartoon or any of that jazz. I didn't know what the big deal was or what the difference was. Here's what I knew. I finally got my own Pokemon, my own game boy, and I got to play and I was super excited about it. And then my Pokemon, my little starter Pokemon wouldn't stay in its pokeball and it irritated me to no end and so yeah i was actually a yellow i started on yellow i will say man pokemon has just been blowing and going since release they've had a new addition it seemed uh, i guess taking the i call it the madden approach where there's a new one every year yeah it seems like and sometimes multiple iterations so they'll have you know they had red and blue and then they had like sapphire and ruby and then you know, various iterations, you know, white and black, various iterations of colors, sword and shield, things like that. So, yeah, they've definitely saturated the market, and it seems like they do something a little new or a little different every year, so it's kind of interesting to see how far they've taken that game since the original concept of, like, roam around in your little 8-bit world and collect monsters and have them fight in arena battles and live inside these little digital capsules. So, definitely wild to see how far it's gone. One thing too, if, if I'm not mistaken, the actual like true Pokemon game where you run around like has a Pokemon trainer has always been on handheld stuff. Like if you want like actual Pokemon game, like the outside stuff like Pokemon Snap or Arena, things that weren't you running around catching Pokemon, um, those were on the console. But the actual game, I technically I guess the Switch isn't only handheld so it's starting to blur that line so that yeah that that one is a little bit but other than that like 64 super nintendo uh, it never came out for any of them 
Now, just the like, yeah, like you said, was it Pokemon? Was it Stadium? Was the one where you could upload your? Yeah, you could upload caught, Pokemon. Yeah, you could upload your Pokemon that you had actually caught in the previous iterations of the game and have them do big 3D arena battles, which was the the hype. I liked catching them. I was never. I don't even know if I ever even played Stadium. So I never had a Nintendo 64. So you never you you skipped the 64, really? Yeah, I went from the Super Nintendo all the way to the PlayStation 2, and then from the PlayStation 2, I jumped ship to Xbox just so I could get Kotor and Halo. Oh, okay. Okay. Actually, Ryan, I'm fairly certain you were with me when I traded in my PlayStation to get an Xbox so we could play Halo. What? Yeah, that's exactly right. So yeah, that's we made gonna... a special trip to Roswell. Yeah. So that falls into the nostalgia edge of things. And I want to talk about nostalgic games that you guys hold dear, like like we did a minute ago and with Erickson and his eight eyes. He holds that really close. But I was very much a Nintendo console knight for the mo- majority of my life. I had the Nintendo. I had the Super Nintendo. My grandparents actually bought me and my family a Sega Genesis in between. So we had two consoles for a while. We had the Nintendo and a Sega Genesis. And then I moved to the N64. And when the Wii came out, there was a whole big thing. Cause that was the next Nintendo console, but that's when we switched. And like Travis said, it was all due to halo combat evolved, which just in case y'all didn't feel old enough is a retro game. It is, it is in, in the realm. And I was, I was very much like Travis. I owned a controller to play Halo well before I owned an Xbox to play Halo. <laughs> uh, me and Travis, actually, our, our friend group, that was that was one of our first big bonding moments, I think, is because we would get together at our church and we had giant LAN parties at our church for Halo. And I'm talking, when I say giant, these there's 60 plus people there. And I, I had no, no clue how many Xboxes or anything, but there were just cables everywhere, giant Halo parties uh, at lock-ins at our church. It was It was cool. Fusion Frenzy. Oh, Fusion Frenzy, baby. <laughs> well, it was just a series of mini games, like just battling mini games was all that was. It was like Mario Party without the board game. Uh, but yeah, actually, and on the subject of of Halo, that's where we actually see a big rise in multiplayer games. You're looking at the N64 and similar consoles. Uh, I'm going to take a brief moment to tip my hat to the one gaming console that was so far ahead of its time that it failed, the poor Dreamcast. I don't know of anybody that has real fond memories of the Sega Dreamcast, but you're looking at a device that was four player multiplayer ports right on the same console, disc based games, access to the internet for online multiplayer. It just came out (laughs) 10 years too early. No games available. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But let's move us into the N64 realm a little bit, and we'll talk about GoldenEye 007 and Perfect Dark. Those were some of my very first multiplayer game experiences. And for my family, it was fantastic because four of us could play at the same time. Did y'all guys ever ever spend any time in the uh, the multiplayer shooters? Yeah, oh yeah. GoldenEye was huge. Yeah. You had to get the golden gun. You had to get all the extras. You had to do everything. Countless, countless hours per day um, on GoldenEye getting everything I needed so I could have all the stuff. It was It was nuts. It's a good one, though. I did play a lot of Perfect Dark, though. Oh. Um, I heard a lot about it. Um, I played it, like, once or twice, I think. I don't remember. Uh, I played a lot of games, but... And so me and uh, me and my brother in particular, we played a little bit of GoldenEye, but we were Perfect Dark. 
people. They, we played, like you said, countless hours over and over again, running through Perfect Dark, getting better and getting better. Uh, same mechanics, same same style of everything, but one was James Bond and had that godforsaken oddball character in multiplayer. So, <laughs> yeah, I I think the only Goldeneye I played, it, I played it occasionally on the sixty four. I think most of my play for that game came from like an illegal port that I accessed at the school. Oh, wow. I, yeah, I played with other people when I wasn't supposed to be playing video games in my CAD drawing class. So, uh, Mr. Avery, if you're listening to this podcast, I did my homework extremely fast and then played video games through your entire class <laughs> and hardly retained any of that knowledge. So Coming clean. <laughs> So yeah, the, the four I mean, player felt, felt not surprised, Travis. Felt not surprised, Travis. Yeah, the, the four player gameplay for the N sixty four and and similar consoles really revolutionized things for me, uh, allowing a lot of us to play at the same time. And I know one of my absolute favorites was Gauntlet Legends, came out for the N sixty four four player cooperative fantasy game based off an arcade cabinet simply called Gauntlet. And I oh I must have played that to death. Uh, I I. So many hours sunk into Gauntlet Legends. The most useless jump mechanic in game history. <laughs> I played the yeah. shit out of the jump did nothing. It it didn't, did, you it did didn't nothing. avoid attacks. It didn't get you anywhere. <laughs> you could occasionally pop on what you were trying to hop onto, but for the most part, it was to get a different attack motion. Oh yeah, absolutely. So was there ever an uglier controller though than the N64 controller? So this Ever. is controversial. I'm going to say the GameCube because I hated that controller. Absolutely hated the GameCube controller. The Nintendo Power Glove was just an <laughs> aw- like super dope, awful You take that back. It, oh. You Eric, take it back. Eric, it did nothing. It did nothing it, it that didn't it was supposed to. to. It made you look cool. <laughs> that was the point. It oh, made you look cool. Exactly. Glove. See? So actually, the I 64 am... controller is just ugly. I am going to to jump on this one. I think the power glove was was obviously a failure. It didn't work. However, I was one of those kids that watched and rewatched Predator over and over and over again. And so having my power glove like my wrist mounted controller, it was it was cool. I, I liked it. Both of you guys are dorks. <laughs> and proud of it. Power Actually, glove was of, so lame. Speaking of strange Why? controllers, Ever. let's talk about Duck Hunt and the NES firearm played the so, shit out of duck hunt me and my dad oh, played yeah. that game for hours on end did you know that you there's actually a brief window of time where you can actually get a shot off on the dog what no oh, that's a myth. yes now it's a real really thing. yeah so duck hunt was a 1984 light gun shooter um that was developed and published by nintendo eric did you spend any time with the the duck hunt yeah and i mean if you look at it too like for its time that gun was pretty it's pretty good, accurate pretty advanced, yeah it's kind of a shame it doesn't work on newer tvs gotta have I mean, yeah it was it was good yeah you gotta have you glass know, and there's no glass anymore on the subject of light yeah. guns and glass and mechanics i'm gonna take a step away from the consoles for a minute did you guys spend much time i know travis did because we did it together but eric did you spend any time in an arcade were you an arcade kid somewhat like if if there was something something there to grab me um or there was one near me I didn't always live um, somewhere with an easily accessible arcade. So in the town where me and Travis grew up, um, across the street from our church, there was a store called Entertainment Tonight. 
and it was separated into two different sides. One side was a video rental place. It was pretty stock standard video rental place for the early 90s. Uh, but the other side was a cabinet arcade and it had a, your pretty standard fare. You know, it, it had the basketball hoop games, it had some air hockey tables, but it did have a couple dozen large arcade cabinets. And uh, I only learned this recently. There's actually a huge movement of people that are buying and restoring those arcade cabinets and doing games like Gauntlet and like Golden Axe and some of the early, you know, House of the Dead, Area 51 light gun games are, in my opinion, some of the most well-recognized games even to this day. Yeah, well, arcades in general are making a pretty big comeback. I mean, I know in Dallas, we've got like Cidercade, we've got Arcade Open, we've got a handful of others. Uh, names aren't coming to mind, but yeah, they're just, you go in, you pay a little bit of money at the door. And then you just go through and find you an open arcade cabinet and just go have fun. And they've got everything from like the new, really advanced arcade games all the way down to like your 1970s pinball machines, which are by far my favorite to play. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm not as I'm not as big a fan of the newer pinball games just because there's so many different like wild mechanics. I like having the little electronically charged buzzers up at the top and the springs that make contact to complete a circuit. And that's how you determine your points. I love those old school pinball machines, mostly because that makes the, it makes the correct pinball machine sound, I guess is what I was looking for is it makes a very particular tone every time you hit something. Yeah, there you go. But another thing in regards to like retro gaming to an arcades, there's they're actually like some places have adult bars now. Um, where you can play video games like the old retro games and stuff at. So it, it's it's really getting a lot bigger and more interesting the way that the community is going. The fact they have bars now they didn't used to says a lot about our particular generation, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, and their love of video games because prior to, I guess they didn't play as much. The availability was wildly different. I mean, you look at how many people, I mean, even with just Ryan and I growing up, there were some people whose families were just like, no, like we're not going to have a video game console in the house. And my parents were like, whatever gets Travis to shut the hell up for a minute. So that's <laughs> kind of how I ended up in gaming is my parents needed to distract me. So it's definitely become way more prevalent. Well, and you see when, with a lot of these kind of stuff, I'm going to take a minute and let's, let's look at the, the terminology, right? Retro gaming. Um, and I found this part pretty interesting in the first known instance of the term retro in gaming actually came from an online video game store called Retro Games, uh, which was launched in 1997 um, as a joint effort of TurboZone Direct and Robert Frazier, which specialized primarily in TurboGrafx-16, Sega Master Systems, and NES sales and repairs. And they really opened up an entirely new culture of gaming as time has progressed, because now we start seeing things like retro computing um, and, in fact, remix culture as a whole, where people are looking at old technologies and old devices and making it their, their hobby to embrace this nostalgia, restore these systems back to where they were, and really do something artistic and fun with it. There's a, a few videos out there, and I encourage you to look them up, where people are not just restoring arcade games, but full pinball machines. Uh, vending machines, gambling vendings. Um, there's a whole culture about taking these machines and getting them fixed back up and, and working again. And 
I think it's interesting when you look at the deviation of the culture, right? So we look at remix culture, we look at retro gaming, and it's splintered off into one of two different directions. Where you have one side, which is the remix culture and, and the retro craft hobby, I guess is a way to put it, where people are rebuilding these old machines and, and restoring them back to original functionality. But then you start having things like ports and emulators that have come out. And that's that's really opened it up to a much wider audience. Have you guys ever gamed using using an emulator? Yeah, both. I, I've done both. I actually have one hooked up currently that I received as a gift that's got a series of very awesome old school games. So you were talking about at the beginning, Sonic 2 is on there. I've got all the Marios. Uh, to include Mario Party 1, not that I ever was big into Mario Party, but... Don't lie, you played it. <laughs> I played it. I did play it. It's just not. It's too much like an actual board game. Like if you could get me to just do the mini games, I'm in. Like I love all the little mini games. It's the dice rolly around the board thing. Just oh, it's yeah. not for me. So he hates board games. Is what he's telling us, folks. He hates <laughs> board games. I've I've made that announcement more than once on this podcast. I am not a board <laughs> games guy. I'm just not. Yeah, that's that's why I'm in the board game section. I think. Uh, but yeah, I've, I've also used used emulators and ports. In fact, some of the first times I got to play things like Daggerfall, or uh, and I have a whole section I'm going to get into with the Bethesda Elder Scrolls stuff. Um, but what about you, Eric? You ever ever use an emulator? Ever do any of that retro yeah. gaming? Absolutely. I, I don't think you can call yourself a true gamer if you haven't um, used an emulator to play some games because it's hard to collect every single system um, and every single game that you enjoy. So, so emulators really, really made it possible to do a lot. Now I am, I do think Nintendo is one of the smartest slashed dumbest businesses in the world because they gave up on games early on, like Final Fantasy and stuff like that. Well, I don't know if they gave up so much as, as let them go. And, and I say that because they're the smartest by taking advantage of emulators in a sense, by releasing mini consoles with preloaded games from our well at least our childhood us three in particular who were uh probably played a lot of nintendo and super nintendo so that was pretty that that was smart on their behalf because i know they don't make anything off emulators and by releasing those cute little systems um with a couple games on it usually half of them were were quality games um, half were probably fillers was a way to take advantage of the emulator community um, and and nostalgic gaming i think did sony yep. put one out too finally yeah sony's put one out they had like the little miniature playstation one that oh, was loaded right. with a whole bunch of playstation games and then of course you had the nintendo came out with theirs first uh, followed yep. by sony but yeah, I, nostalgia's always been marketable. That's been a very marketable thing forever. You know, people always want to relive those those little glory moments of their childhood to the point where I'm going through and playing a bunch of my like classic games that I remember enjoying from way back and finding that I'm wildly frustrated with how poor some of the mechanics are in them. I'm like, why that? Why is this so bad? And then I get to thinking about it. I'm like, well, shit, this was, you know, 25 years ago. It's not a shocker that this is terrible Like by comparison yeah. to any modern game so but i do think the only reason we got a lot of those retro nostalgic systems is because of the emulator community i think the companies saw how big and popular 
emulators are and ROMs and stuff like that. And then they were like, well, we got to do something. Now, I wish they would have got a bit of a fan vote as to what games to put on it. Um, but, I mean, you, there's probably only so much they can do. Yeah, licensing is going to be a, a big thing, especially now with a lot of that stuff. So when they release stuff, yeah, it's all going to be licensing based. You know, everything's about the almighty dollar in that regard. I'm not oh, yeah. shocked that you get a lot of those filler games with like a couple of highlights because they're probably having to figure out exactly how... Uh, how much they were willing to spend to send this out. Well, and the other side of that is going to be the technology, right? And so I'm going to get into this little section here. I know me and my brother and my cousin, we had a little forgotten guest bedroom at our ranch house that we were allowed to kind of take over as kids. It kind of turned into a game room. And we had two televisions in there, and we had one of them set up with PlayStation, and the other one set up with Nintendo, all the way up until 1999, where we hooked up two different PlayStations. And that's because we would tandem play Resident Evil and Silent Hill, which is are always going to stay some of my favorite retro games. And I've gone back to try to replay them in order to capture more of the story and, and examine some of the lore elements of the game in Silent Hill in particular. And it surprised me just how terrible the game actually looked. And I started thinking there had to be something wrong with my emulator. There had to be something going on because I remember when I was a kid, this looked crisp. It was amazing. And it just doesn't. Um, it's, it's, it's really bad, which a large part of that is due to the technology. And so you take some of these systems and you start plugging them into flat, fat, uh, flat screen TVs and, and our modern, modern televisions and stuff. They just look atrocious because they don't have that. I don't know what to call it. The vacuum kind of cathode ray tubing kind of, the, they don't have the same setup as the TV they were designed for, which is leads us into the next kind of segment of nostalgia gaming and the almighty dollar and that's remakes and re-releases remastered versions of games now one just came out for me that i was just bonkers over and that they remade fatal frame one of my favorite horror games of all time if y'all haven't played it highly recommend it but it's it's got to be counted as one of the scariest games i've ever played it's it's kind of a ghost game real deep story I'm not going to spoil anything because I encourage you to get this remake and, and play it for yourselves. Have y'all had any of your hipstering on us? Yeah, just a little, just a little. Um, do y'all have any of your favorite games that have that have hit a, a remastered or a remake? I know Eric, you were talking about Knights of the Old Republic was getting remade here pretty quick. You're excited about that. Do you have any already that you were just not only did they remake them, but they did a good job? Final Fantasy VII. The oh, only yeah. thing I don't like is how they're spacing it out. Um, I don't know why they're doing that, but I do like the new take. Like they're changing a little bit. The graphics look nice. I get it. It was a, a bunch of discs when you bought it originally. Is it like three or four discs? Originally, it was some massive game, massive game for the time. Um, but I don't understand why they're, they're doing it in waves. So like I played the first, I haven't touched it since, um, I think, Part two came out or something already. I'm waiting until everything's released and then I'll jump on and smash through that whole thing again. Take take a week off work and just hammer it out. But yeah, I don't try not to now. <laughs> I didn't want to. I don't want to double up and also say Final Fantasy VII. So I'm looking through like my game list here on my Xbox to see what I've got. Uh, His shit box, folks. It's a remake. Oh, here we go. <laughs> um, but now, I mean. I do like when they update like 
little bits of graphics on like emulator games so like i've gone back and played doom with updated graphics which is super cool like the original og doom with upgraded graphics was pretty fun just to see instead of an 8-bit monster like an actual monster coming at me uh, oh yeah ryan was talking he's like well it wasn't designed you know those old cathode tube tvs ryan we also have to understand that gaming devices have moved on fantastically from that original playstation game oh yeah they can render so much better like i remember you know again just talking about it going back playing old school games i'm like why is everything so fucking sharp like you could (laughs) cut glass with people's chins and then i got to thinking about it i was like well they they're still wireframe. They probably couldn't round it out. They weren't going to get enough bit resolution to give somebody a round chin, so it just had to come to a knife edge. You know, you get the camera turned to a specific angle, and somebody just suddenly disappears. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, in some of the measures... what about some... sorry, go ahead. So what? Since we're on the retro gaming topic, what about retro tabletop? There we go. English so bad. Brain still floating in booze. Do you guys ever go back and play like second edition D and D, or or like some really old, um, probably like we you guys also played World of Darkness. So any of the original World of Darkness stuff, you guys go back and do that. So yeah, absolutely. Um, with with Dungeons and Dragons, we we definitely gave Advanced Dungeons and Dragons a shot, and it was fine for what it was. I, as far as I remember it, Travis, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this. 3.5 was just such a superior system, in my opinion, to Advanced Dungeons and Dragons 2nd Edition. The mechanic, it, the way the game worked, I think was just better. It made Give more of that go. Everything was like pretty linear with it. There was some really weird conditional things that would happen in Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. And I'm like, this makes no sense. Uh, I always make the joke of, I call it the rule loop, where one rule refers to another rule, refers to another rule. And so you're in six books, and each one's telling you to look in the other book for what this fucking condition does. None of them ever define it. It's this, <laughs> it, like literally an endless cycle. I think the one I always bring up was suffocation incurs the same penalties as not being able to breathe. Which you look incurs at not the same breathing, penalties as drowning. <laughs> you look at drowning, and it tells you to look at suffocation. Yeah. <laughs> And it just, it led to problems. Yeah, I thought I was going to witness a murder one night between Ryan and his brother as they argued the same side of a rule out of two separate books. That's a fact. For Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. They're two separate books. Both of them clearly define this rule. Ryan and his brother ready to commit bloody murder on one another. And I'm just watching. I'm just like, when are they going to realize that they're talking about the same thing? And I'm just like back and forth with them like a tennis match (laughs) as they shout and reference their book and like, now, that being said, that is an instance where we tried the old stuff, prefer the new stuff. Me personally, I have played Old World of Darkness, New World of Darkness, and the most recent releases of the World of Darkness, uh, where they've come back out with Vampire the Masquerade and a new edition. And I will say solidly that, and perhaps it's just because that's where I started, I do not care for Old World of Darkness. And that is nothing against you people out there that are big into it. I know Bones loves his old World of Darkness, particularly in Vampire and in Demon. I didn't care for it. Now, the new World of Darkness, I guess the second edition World of Darkness, love it. It's premium. It's it's fantastic. Uh, the, the books they came out with. In fact, the room I'm sitting in right now, I have probably over 20 books of, of new World of Darkness stuff, ranging from Changeling to Mage to all that. Absolutely love it. Holds up even to this day. 
And the new stuff they released is fine. It's a good game. It's fantastic. I have nothing against it. It just doesn't capture the same feel for me. And perhaps that's just my own personal bias. But yeah, we've we've done some retro tabletop RPGs before. In fact, we've done it with one shots or, or, or micro campaigns into some of the really obscure old campaigns. And I'm going to tip my hat to Burning Empires because holy crap, was I not prepared for that game. <laughs> Tomb of Annihilation was rough. Yeah. That yeah, was Tomb of Annihilation was rough. Yeah. A bunch of no, like, no save instant death. Like six characters later, I'm like, all right, don't touch fucking anything. Just make it to the end. <laughs> we'll fight the big bad evil guy. And they're like, well, you didn't touch the right things. And the big bad evil guy just instant kills you. I'm like, this is bullshit. <laughs> and you see the same thing actually in miniatures gaming. There is a big push right now for people in Warhammer and Warhammer 40K. They call it old hammering because they'll go back and they'll play second edition Warhammer 40,000 or they'll go back and play the, I think it's fourth edition Warhammer Fantasy just because that's, they think it's better and they like the, the throwback style games. I know one for my play group um, and big shout out to uh, to Ugly on this one. We played Mordheim. We played Mordheim to death and that is that that's an older game and we played it from when it was released put it down picked it back up played it again put it down picked it back up and played it with a much larger group of friends and we just keep going back to it and they haven't released any kind of support or update for that game in decades it's ridiculous Mordheim was fun I know Ryan is itching to get back to uh, I believe it was 6th edition Warhammer 40k it was by far his favorite I can tell. Oh, by far. Yeah, he's he's taking me real serious right now when everything was just outrageously expensive if you weren't IG or Tyranid. Yep. <laughs> Golly. I, he looked at my point. I remember we're setting up for a game of 6th edition with Ryan. He was looking at the cost of my Space Marines, and he was like, why are your Space Wolves more expensive than Grey Knight HQ choices? I was like, bro, I don't know. <laughs> that's the dude across me could field 200 dudes. I've got like five guys, and one of them has a name, and like that's... The whole that was all my points, like two thousand point army. Here's Todd and his four friends. <laughs> um. So yeah, what about you, Eric? You ever uh, go back to old games, old tabletops, anything like that? I have not. I started with second edition, but yeah, I haven't. I haven't done anything in regards of going back with any sort of tabletop stuff. I don't have a group right now that I'm currently in, so there's nothing, nothing big with that. I I just do a lot of the like video games themselves, or read a lot of the older retro fantasy novels. Stuff like that, but yeah, I don't ever none of the tabletop stuff. I I do want to get back into World of Darkness though. In um, you know, in in regards good. to that, I was thinking we've done it occasionally, going back and playing like old RPGs. But I've noticed that I don't go back and like seek out older consoles to play some of my older games if it's not on my updated console that I have hooked up or my emulator preloaded onto my emulator. I don't play them anymore. You know, got to thinking about it. One of my favorite, two like 2D side-scrollers, the original Ninja Turtles game for uh, Nintendo being a huge game for me in my childhood. The Star Wars game for the Super Nintendo was another big one. I don't mm-hmm. really go back to my 2D platformers all that much, mostly because they've come out with some like really awesome puzzle-solving 3d looking 2d platformers that are just better and more fun more challenging oh yeah here's another niche one for you guys Uh in games after you brought that up 
So you got to look up Pirate. I think it's Pirates for Nintendo. Oh, that, absolutely. That's a, that was one of the premium games, in my opinion, that like 90% of people don't even know about. So awesome one, game. I, I, love I don't even know game. if it ever emulated. I'm not sure I, it, it emulated, but yeah, we played that one on, on, on Nintendo. Oh, I got nothing but love for that one. I still don't understand its mechanics. There was a couple of games where I would turn it off and log back in and try to update my save game. And my crew would just be filled with pirates and I'd have this wildly upgraded ship. And I still have no idea why. Um, so yeah, absolutely love pirates. Kalen was playing over your save file is what it was. <laughs> right. Let's see here. So pirates, the, on- the only pirates I'm like super familiar with that doesn't involve Johnny Depp, uh, was a direct to DVD film. That's for adults only. So, you guys are 1987 for Pirates. That one was good. That I one loved was fantastic. it. And yes, great movie reference. <laughs> yeah. Um, after doing a couple deployments, um, you've definitely have watched that movie at least once. Pretty sure everybody had that one. Oh yeah. But so while we look at uh, our nostalgia here and some of the retro games that we played as kids, you can start seeing kind of a definite genre tones. And because I was obviously a, a horror gamer with the exception of uh, the big hits like like Legend of Zelda and Pokemon. But I did a lot of Silent Hill, Biohazard, Resident Evil, Fatal Frame. But I also had certain retro games that completely changed my perspective. And I'm going to get into a little bit of an anecdote time. This is one me and Travis share. Because one of the video games that absolutely changed my entire outlook on gaming was Elder Scrolls 3 Morrowind, which pains me to say is a retro game, but it is absolutely amazing experience. I have no idea how they pulled that off on the original Xbox console. An absolutely beautiful game. And that transformed me from a a horror or survival horror gamer into an open world adventure fantasy gamer. And I remember me and my friends so excited gathering up in high school for the release of Elder Scrolls IV Oblivion. It was a huge thing. I think a grand total of one or two of us even owned the brand new Xbox 360. A couple of us owned controllers just so we could play. And we gathered up at our friend Paco's house, uh, which Wendy... You are an absolute saint for putting up with that many high school boys piling into your home. I can't believe you allowed us to do that. But Wendy liked having us. It was Howard we had to be on the good (laughs) side of, man. (laughs) Right. But we played Elder Scrolls 4 nonstop. I think I was awake for 72 hours. I'm pretty sure I have brain damage from that. But we played it so much that the title screen from us switching and taking turns and switching to different characters actually got burned into the te- television screen at Paco's house. And, oh, that was that's some of my fondest memories of all of us just sitting in there, no sleep for days, playing that through through summer vacation. And, oh, absolutely, absolutely love the Elder Scrolls series. Everybody goes on and on and on about uh, Skyrim because it's been remade and redone, remastered and re-released. But for me, it's always going to be about Morrowind. It's always going to be about Oblivion. Oblivion was amazing just because you got to the end and it didn't matter how you fought. It was like, you look like a rogue. 
and my character literally had carried a torch the whole way through that opening dungeon, and I would put it away, pull out my two-handed hammer, swing until it stopped making noise, which meant I was no longer being attacked, and then would pull my torch back out and look around to see what all I had <laughs> killed, and then would just move on. And then I get to the end, and he's like, oh, you look like a sneak thief. I'm like, bro, what about my full plate armor and giant hammer tells you that I'm <laughs> sneaky? It's because you fought in the dark. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it so was to, my friend. To kind of round us out here, I had one more topic I want to talk about before we uh, call this a an episode. And that's the fact that retro gaming and nostalgia has continued to flavor how games are made, what games are being released or re-released or remastered, and has actually become a major component in both the indie game scene and in modern television and movies. You start looking at some of the movies that have come out, like Sonic the Hedgehog, Full Tilt Nostalgia Game, as well as movies like Stay Alive, which, as a survival horror game guy, that was a good one for me. They referenced a lot of my favorite games. And then you start having these gaming experiences from indie gamers that are all about, oh, it's 1994, and these reclaimed VHS-style games where you they purposefully go in and program the static and film grain that all of us had to deal with growing up. And it's it's an entire genre now. And I think I'm pretty happy about it. These are really cool and are fantastic little bite-sized games that are six to 18 hour experiences. And I'm not going to lie, it makes me really happy. And this throws back to what Travis was saying about nostalgia always selling well. Even some of the biggest stuff that we have right now, look at Stranger Things, based entirely on nostalgia. And I'm going to tip my hat to Stranger Things because they really show that you can use nostalgia in mass media without having a bunch of pop culture references. What do you guys think? Have you done any done any time in the nostalgia realm of television, movies, or video games and modern counts? I, I mean, I, I have my favorite TV shows that I'll always go back and watch. I've had a few remakes of TV shows that I used to enjoy that were fairly good. Uh, you know, speaking straight up of nostalgia, I loved both the... Uh, Bradley Cooper, uh, Quentin Rampage, Jackson update of the A-Team. And I also loved the original show just because it was so outrageously campy. Like it, it was trying so hard to be good that it became bad and it was so bad that it was amazing. If that makes any sense at all, the old school A-Team TV show was absolute garbage, but I love watching every episode. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that I'll go back to with like remakes, retouch-ups, things like that always draw me back in just to see what they've done. See, this is... This is where the old side comes in. So in regards to some of that, my problem is, is I don't, I don't know how to explain it. Like, so a big one for me is Ghostbusters. The originals were epic. I wanted to be a Ghostbuster and they were awesome. Now, when they made the all-female cast, I'm going to be very particular here. I had no issues with it being an all-female cast whatsoever. But my problem, I just didn't think it was very well written. Um, I think I think they they tried, they put a good cast together. I think the four ladies worked really well together, and it was great. But if they they could they should have called it something. They would have called it something else, or if they would have, I think worked it where worked it into the Ghostbusters timeline or did something, maybe. But like that's just a, that's one of those situations. You got a lot of you got a lot to to live up to when you make that it's not as it's not that easy to to, it, to touch on a, a thing like that i, th- I so thought it was you... okay like i wasn't i didn't really have strong feelings either way about it i still think my favorite character in it was 
was it Chris Hemsworth, right? Was the Yeah, it was Hemsworth. Yeah, he was the himbo secretary and he was probably had some of the best spots through there and individually all of those women have been in movies that i've particularly enjoyed all of them been very funny that one just kind of fell flat for me um and i think part of it was the hype got a little too big too early for it before it came out and it just kind of kind of fell flat was not well received by audiences was not well received by critics either it was just one of those things where i think they kind of doomed themselves to failure and see, the interesting part about Ghostbusters in particular, I'm just like you. The originals are amazing. I absolutely love them. I rewatch them every year. Uh, some of the first movies I actually watched with my children uh, whenever they got old enough to be interested in that kind of thing. And I likewise had similar reactions uh, to the remake. It was it was fine. It didn't feel like Ghostbusters to me. It didn't feel like a continuation. Um, And it was it was a fine movie. Great cast. But... I just didn't feel right to me. However, the other one they made, the Ghostbusters Afterlife, the continuation of the story, I loved. I think that one was absolutely fantastic. And it was it wasn't a remake, it wasn't a retelling, it wasn't anything but an homage to the originals and the major cultural milestone that they became. And it's funny because if you look at it, I don't think the cast was as strong in the new one as the one with the ladies. But it did better because of how it presented itself. The way it went about it is why it did better. I, I truly, I don't believe it. It The cast was so much stronger in the All Ladies one. That was, they were very good together. It's just the way they pitched the movie and, and the, the way the storyline was, it just wasn't the greatest for people. If you looked at it as just a standalone, like if it, if it didn't have all that retro history, then you could, you could look at Ghostbusters, that, that Ghostbuster movie and be like, yeah, that's a pretty good movie. But because you got all that in there, that's the one downside when you start messing with with retro stuff and movies and books and stuff like that, like real story heavy things. You, you have to you have to be careful. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and when you look at some of our other retro content that we have, we, we can see a lot of successes. Diablo originally released in 1996, just opened the beta for Diablo four. Very well received. The Legend of Zelda came out. The first one was 1986, and they haven't stopped making Legends of Zelda. That's It's been an amazing game story. Same with so many amazing franchises, amazing opening storytelling, all the way from Super Mario to Donkey Kong to Shadow of the Colossus. And one of the ones I wanted to bring up that's actually made a media transition 1997 Castlevania it has continued to evolve new games and now has in my opinion some absolute hit television shows and cartoons that are doing amazing and so while some of these didn't quite stand the test of time to being remade or re-released I think fans will continue to hold on to a lot of these titles forever and ever things like Chrono Trigger and Tony Hawk's Pro Skater are going to stay in people's hearts for a very, very long time, even though new games aren't being made. Uh, and so, Tony, as- Tony Hawk Pro Skater One and Two actually recently got a remake, not terribly long ago, handful really? of years. Yeah, it wanted, they re-released it on the, I believe, it was the PlayStation Five. I think it was one of their on-drop 
like releases was was Tony Hawk Pro Skater one and two. Oh, that's fantastic news! I was unaware of that. Love those games, man! Like, oh yeah, they were fantastic. I call it one of the because there's really no like real story to it per se, yeah. other than like earn points. I I call it a do nothing game, and it's a fantastic do nothing game. You can just sit down and do nothing all day and just have a grand old time. Oh yeah, well, and then you watch some of these other ones that continue to stay mainstays, things like Metroid. And so whether you have a game that really changed how storytelling was done in video games, like Legend of Zelda, or you have a game that really redefined how video games could be played, where you're looking at things like Perfect Dark, 007, Street Fighter, and Mortal Kombat. When it deals with retro gaming, you're not just dealing with nostalgia. You're dealing with a history that's continued to evolve in both mechanics in the way the storytelling is presented that has led us all the way to gaming as we understand it now. And I'll be interested to see what games look like in 15 to 20 years. I got one good one. I got one more good one. So this isn't a game though. This is an honest to God question and we don't have to get too crazy into it because you could probably talk forever. Both of you on this is retro nostalgia more acceptable and more successful in video games than it is in comics movies and basically anything else do you, do you think that any other market is as acceptable to retro things because personally i don't i think you can do whatever you want in a video game and people don't mind final fantasy is a prime example always changing always doing stuff but when you go and you look at comics and you try to change some of the original superheroes a lot of people get upset when you yeah. look at movies the same thing like ghostbusters like i mentioned and then charlie's angels when they redid those retro type things they didn't always work a team even though you loved it travis and i loved it um brian i don't know how you felt yeah, it, it didn't it, did, it didn't do as no, it, great as they thought it was going to yeah it it bombed on that specifically speaking for comics origin stories get written and rewritten so many times you can pick any comic book character and read a good jillion different origin stories for them because they get updated over time you know some things become more or less socially acceptable based on their origin story and so things have to change to to keep up with that so as far as retelling and redoing origin stories and stuff like that comics kind of has a free pass just because there's thousands of arcs with a whole bunch of different worlds and universes and you know which earth is it and all that fun multiverse stuff. So I think they kind of get a pass in regards to that, but I think movies are just as big on the remake side with specifically updating what you can do with movies, like what you can show graphically now by comparison, uh, which is why you're getting a lot of remakes of very classic movies like, uh, and the Blade Runner. Uh, Blade Runner. All, all quiet on the Western Front for those of you that like watching uh, World War II era historical films. All quiet on the Western Front was originally a play. It became a movie way back in the black and white era. It recently got a redo on Netflix, and it's visually very moving. It's very stirring. It's terrifying, you know, to see in color what the conditions were like in trench warfare and stuff like that. So yeah, movies do a really good job of kind of capturing that nostalgia sometimes. Now, granted, there are some failures, so. 
Yeah, but is it as acceptable as gaming? That's what I mean. Like in comics, comics always do what you're right, but comics had to literally create a multiverse just to do it. Like they couldn't keep you on the same plane of existence. That says a lot. Like they had to create this whole extra thing to do it. Video games, they just put out another game, dude. That's all they do. There's no big uproar. There's no big nothing. And Blade Runner 2 was a flop, by the way. I would say that there is something that really kind of supports your theory. I'm hesitant to say that it's more or less acceptable in video games than others with this particular exception. In comic books, in movies, and in television shows, we are expected to have a certain standard of quality when it comes to things like graphics or visuals. Especially in movies, and especially in comic books, if you open a modern comic book and you get an art style from the 80s, it's not going to look right. People do not want the 1980s comic book art styles and qualities in a modern comic book. Whereas in video games, people will go out of their way to code and create the same graphical limitations that you would see on classic consoles. Because if you try to do a 1994 style video game, you're going to have a lot more success with a graphics engine, a graphics style down to the knife edge chins that Travis talked about earlier compared to a game that looks hyper modern. And you start looking at things like alien isolation. What they're doing in those regards are taking very high quality visuals and taking a take into the franchise. Whereas you look at things like, there's a killer at the gas station or I'm home alone as horror games. They've gone out of their way to make sure everybody has that really polygon heavy knife edged graphical style, including film grain and sepia distortions in the gameplay itself. I think it's all going to, I mean, it's all going to be conditional, like on, on what gets well received and what doesn't, you know, there's some of those, absolute classics that should never be touched for a remake in my opinion those ones that were like wildly revolutionary um gaming doesn't really fall into that because everybody always wants to see it cleaner crisper they want old mechanics that were either poorly done or incomplete fleshed out um so you don't see it as much in like film and comics and stuff like that because they'd you know, they're just going to either create a new world or create a new story or whatever based around it. In games, you get that, like, we talked about it on an earlier episode, I think, you know, the bump, the way two character frames interact with one another. You could do wild things with that, with interactive scenery at the beginning of gaming, and it was ridiculous. And, like, now they've refined it to the point where it's hardly, you know, there unless you're physically ramming into whatever it is that you're bumping into. So, I mean, I don't, again, I think it's just going to be conditional on, on what's accepted and what's not. One thing, just one remake movie that was a huge success. Who's, who's got one. Cause I don't have any, like as much as I enjoyed like a team um, or, or uh, some of the Robin hoods, that came out after the original. 
I can't think of any that were more successful than the original, or even on par with the original for movies. That's that's why I say, I just I think movies. It's because we become so attached to the character because we're supposed to. I think we fall in love with the original, and then it's hard to picture other people playing those. Maybe I don't. I just I can't explain it. So one of the most successful remakes that we've seen when it comes to movies in particular was the Magnificent Seven. I liked the original. I liked the new the new one, but as far as box office and numbers go, that was a massive success. The other ones I'm looking at the numbers now that you see that are remakes that did very, very well are The Dawn of the Dead, Magnificent Seven, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which I don't remember ever being remade, but all right. And the number one best, as far as the numbers go is actually it's ironic to say it's a remake alfred hitchcock remade the man who knew too much in 1956 which originally was his when he released it in 1934 um number two as far as the numbers go is magnificent seven um and then it looks like i'm, I'm taking you didn't like it travis yeah I liked it. I I did. I liked the movie, the original, so much better than the remake, though. Like, far and away. I felt way more emotional attachment to every single character in the original than I ever did the remake. Um, But, again, even Magnificent Seven, the original movie, is just a retelling of the Seven Samurai. So, it's a remake of a remake. But you forgot the new true... I say new, it's come out several years ago. The new True Grit with uh, oh, Jeff Bridges. With, yeah, I almost said Rooster Cogburn like that wasn't his character's name. Yeah, well-received, uh, critically, you know, well, well-received, you know, critics and audiences alike. I still prefer the original with John Wayne, but the remake, I will have to say, was pretty solid. So as it turns out, I went ahead and opened it up to a worldwide box office as a guideline, right? Worldwide box office, what did better as a remake? And unsurprising, now that I think about it, Disney takes the top three. With the bronze medal going to Aladdin, the silver going to Beauty and the Beast, and the Lion King 2019 remake being the most successful movie remake of all time worldwide. Now, I think it's it's interesting because they're all they all they're remakes, but they went from being cartoons to live action. Mm-hmm. Well, and so, so you get the fourth interesting and thing. Fourth is Dawn of the Planet of the Apes worldwide. And fifth was it. And that one I can agree. I liked the new it better than the original. The original wasn't a movie. It was a TV series. Like it was a for serialized what? for it. It was like a five-part made-for-TV movie. No, I'm pretty sure it was a movie too. No, it was a movie. It was a movie. They com- they compiled it. The one with Tim Curry. Yeah, Tim Curry and Seth Green. Yeah, it compiled. Oh, T- Travis I- is right. Why do you guys question me? I'm always right. Wow, he was right. I did not know that. So they kind of got the Dune tree. Oh, Dune. I love. I want. No, I need Eric to hit my applause button. 
Oh, yeah. Okay, hold on one second. Sorry, I don't. I don't have our <laughs> our our stuff like that set up right. for easily access. He's gonna yes, he's gonna cue booze now. Travis was right. All right. Uh, but with that, guys, we are going to have to wrap this episode. We are a little over uh, over time budget here. I am interested to hear what we missed and what your thoughts are. If there was a favorite game, one you hold close, they have a lot of nostalgia for, a favorite movie, a favorite tabletop RPG or book that you consider in the retro realm, tell us about it. Put it on our Facebook page, Heroes of the Nerdverse. Put it on our Twitter page, CTN underscore podcast. Tag us. Let us know. Did I miss your favorite video game from your childhood? What was it? Everybody's always missing mine. Just going to say. <laughs> okay, as we go out, do you guys have any super niche video games that you wish would come back? Ones that you don't think anybody else has ever played? Hit us up and let us know. Eric. Hit us with those links. All right. So as Ryan's already said a couple times, we have Facebook group Heroes of the Nerdverse. You have CTN underscore podcast for Twitter. You have at H Nerdverse is the parent at, on Twitter. You also have crossingthenerdverse.com. Um, and then you could also get us um, on Apple and Spotify because we noticed a lot of people started listening to us on Apple. Um, so make sure that you're checking us out there too, but you can get us anywhere that you get podcasts. Um, and the merch shop is on crossing the And there are links out there on our, on our other platforms. Um, so make sure that you check it out. Let us know. And with that, this episode's coming to a close. Thank you for joining us on this quest through retro gaming and we'll catch you next time. See ya.